And uh, while you're turning there, I need to make one more brief announcement. Um, Brittany, let me know that this Saturday um, is the, uh, uh, I don't know if it's an annual or quarterly, but Buddy Walk. Um, that's this Saturday uh, from 9, well, registration begins at 9, the walk begins at 11, and that'll be um, at the Hot Rod uh, Stadium. So um, that'll be this Saturday. Um, and, uh, okay, so First Timothy uh, chapter 5, um, and uh, we have been making our way through this letter to First Timothy, and as I've explained before, we, we make our way through books of the Bible because I believe that uh, the gospel is not simply about what Christ has done for us in dying uh, to redeem us from our sin, but the gospel has very real application to how our lives are lived, not only outside of the church, but particularly within the church as well. And 1 Timothy is a letter that is really focused on what the gospel means for the local church. How should it shape the life of the local church? How should people within the local church relate to one another? If there is false teaching or immorality within the church, how does the church address these particular issues? And so the last few weeks we've entered into chapter 5 and we've seen how um, members are to relate to one another, how pastors are relate to relate to members, older members, younger mem- members, Men, women, etc., etc. And last week we, we looked at um, widows and how the church cares for widows, and then more broadly as well, how we care for those who might be poor and needy among us. And we saw several principles laid out for us last week. And so we pick up where we left off this week in verse 17, and I'll read this morning from verse 17 down to verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Would you pray with me? Father, You have given us the good news that 
The Son of God has entered into this world and has dwelt among the darkness of this world and sinful people within this world, not ultimately to condemn them, but to save them. Lord, we live in a time of mercy and grace where the Gospel goes out to the nations and we are all called to repent and to bow the knee to the King of the world. So Lord, we thank You that You have shown us mercy and grace in Christ. Lord, Your Word also teaches us that Your Gospel affects us in every way. And You have taught us, Lord, that You not only rescue us to have personal fellowship with You, but You also bring us into Your body, into the local church where we can have fellowship and grow among and with one another. So Father, I pray that as we continue to study and learn from Your Word and and to see what it calls us to do and to be together. Lord, I pray that You would open up our hearts, illuminate Your Word for us by Your Spirit, so that we might walk humbly before our God and be a light to our community. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Danny Aiken, Dr. Danny Aiken, who's uh, currently now the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina, was speaking at the ERLC's conference on race and racial reconciliation this past spring. If you don't know what the ERLC is, it's the branch of the Southern Baptist Convention that addresses primarily cultural and political issues. And he was speaking there on this conference, again, on race and racial reconciliation. And during his sermon, he told of an experience he had when he was the dean of students at Southeastern Seminary. This was around the mid-90s. He said one uh, one Monday morning, there was a young man who came into his office. He had tears streaming down his face. And Dr. Aiken asked him, what's wrong? Why are you crying? The student replied, well, yesterday I was fired from my church. Dr. Aiken said, well, okay, you know, sometimes that happens. What, what exactly happened, if you mind telling me? The young man said, well, last week we had our vacation Bible school. We invited people from all over the community. It didn't matter where they came from, what their social status was, what their race was. We invited everyone. We sent out invites to all. Dr. Aiken, we had some, some black children who came to our VBS. And in fact, we shared the Gospel with them and challenged them to repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ. And many of them did. Many of them we believe we're saved. And so we told them that next week we, should, we would like to have them come back to our church and to be baptized and to present themselves to the church for membership. So the next Sunday they came. And they came with their families. They came with their mothers. And they presented themselves for membership. 
Well, then after the service, he said, our deacons called an emergency meeting. And they fired me on the spot and wouldn't let me return to the church that evening. Well, Dr. Aiken then encouraged him, told him that there are some things, some kills to die on, and this is one of them. And he said that God will honor your faithfulness and continued to encourage him. Well, a few, week, a few weeks went by and Dr. Aiken, this is a true story, said that in God's good and wise and perhaps sometimes humorous providence, he, uh, Dr. Aiken received a phone call from the chairman of the search committee of this church looking for a new pastor. He didn't know how they got his number. He didn't know anyone from this church. No one from this church knew him. But somehow they got his contact and they gave him a call. And the chairman calls Dr. Aiken and he said, Dr. Aiken, I've been told that you might be of some help to us in finding a new pastor. Dr. Aiken said, no, you have a pastor. The chairman said, no, we, we just lost our pastor. That's why I'm calling you. We need a new pastor. And Dr. Aiken said, no, you did fire a very fine young man who was attempting to be your pastor. But you have a pastor. And he is the devil. And though I've never been to your church, I am quite sure that written over it today is the phrase, Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. And I don't have a single enemy on this planet that I would recommend to come to a religious club like yours because you are certainly not a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some might suggest that those words might be a little too harsh. But I think that if you are so steeped in racism that you cannot rejoice in the salvation of a young child because they're black... Somebody needs to wake you up. And he did just that. Now, I tell this story not primarily because of the racism that was involved, but to illustrate the very unfortunate reality that sometimes church members can be horribly cruel to their pastors. Whether because of sin in their lives or preferences not being fulfilled or something the pastor preaches or sometimes just the way the winds are blowing. The greatest persecution sometimes for a pastor doesn't come from outside of the church but from within. Now before any misunderstandings arise... Let me quickly say that I don't think that's the case here. In fact, on the contrary, I do think that you all have been incredibly gracious to me. I've been doing a lot of reflecting lately. I've been here a year, so I've been thinking over this last year, over things that I could have done differently, things I could have done better, what things were done right, how can I be more kind, more Gracious, more gentle, where do I need to repent? How can I exalt exalt Christ more among you? And I've also been reminded that I am a 29-year-old pastor. 
new and extremely green. And because of that, I know that I have probably made mistakes that a seasoned pastor would not. Yet you have been patient with me, born with me, and many of you have been great encouragers to me. So I don't want there to be any misunderstanding when I say that sometimes church members can be cruel to their pastors, stating a fact of reality. Yet the reverse is also the case, is it not? Sometimes it is the pastors of a church that can be cruel to church members. I think in particular of those so-called pastors who peddle a prosperity gospel on a regular basis. That gospel, like no doubt about it, is a cruel gospel. It preys on the vulnerable and the poor of society. It promises them material wealth if they only have enough faith. And they are called to exercise that faith by giving everything they have to the pastor so that he can enrich himself. People give and give and give, hoping for physical healing that's promised to them, hoping for riches that are promised to them. And when those hopes don't materialize, the pastor tells them, it's because you don't have enough faith. They just need to believe more. Friends, that's cruel. That can be devastating and poisonous to the soul. Well, of course, what the Bible calls us to in the local church is to a much better way when it comes to relationships between pastors and church members. It calls us, it calls upon the church to be a place not where people use one another for their own ends, but where the unity of the Spirit is seen through a body of people dying to themselves daily on behalf of others. Where the members of the church pray for one another, encourage and strengthen one another in the Gospel, hold each other accountable, and work for the spread of God's glory throughout the nations and throughout their communities. It calls upon the church to be a family. Because it is a family. And it is an eternal family. Well, in this family, there are different kinds of people. There's like any other family. There are older, younger, men, women, elders, deacons, rich, and poor. All kinds of people. And Paul, in these latter chapters of 1 Timothy, has been teaching young Timothy how all of these kinds of people should be cared for and how they should be taught in the local church. And we come this morning to a section where Paul is giving instructions about how the elders or the pastors, remember those words are interchangeable, referring to the same office. He's giving instructions about how the elders in the church should be treated. How does the church honor and care for and even minister to her elders? Leah asked me yesterday, do you feel awkward preparing and preaching for this sermon? And I said, absolutely, I do. But I will say this. 
One of the benefits of preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible is that I can never be accused of preaching just whatever my interests are. God sets the agenda for us through His Word and the instruction in godliness we find on every page of it that touches as well on every area of our lives. The other thing I'll say is that I myself have benefited greatly from sermons preached in church or at conferences on how members relate to their pastors, on the nature of the pastoral office. Sometimes they have reminded me to pray more for my pastors. Sometimes they have rebuked me in my pride of thinking that I knew better than my pastors, especially when I was a new believer. Sometimes they have simply shaped the way I view pastoral ministry and understand the spiritual war that's involved with it. So I hope this morning's message will be received in that kind of light. Not as anything that is self-serving, but as it was originally intended to be received. As instruction for the church. How life is to look within the local church, particularly on this matter. And so I want to look at this passage in three parts this morning. First, in verses 17 to 18... The compensation of elders. Second, in verses 19 to 21, the discipline of elders. And then third, in the remaining verses, the ordination of elders. The compensation of elders, the discipline of elders, and the ordination of elders. So let's begin by looking at the compensation of elders Verses 17 and 18. Look at the text again there. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. I think it's worth pointing out, primarily because this can be so foreign to many churches Um, in our context, modern churches, it's worth pointing out that a church was led and shepherded not by one single pastor, but by a plurality of pastors who were called elders or overseers. So again, verse 17, let the elders, plural, see that? Plural, let the elders who rule well. What appears to be the case as well is that among the elders, the body of pastors within a local church, there were some who labored, probably in in a way that we might call full-time, they labored in preaching and teaching, and some who did not. That was not their primary occupation. Now, by, virtue, by virtue of what the office of elder requires and the qualifications for the office that we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3, every single elder, every pastor shepherds the sheep. That's what they do. That's what the office is. Every elder prays for, every elder disciples, and equips the people of God for the work of ministry. Every elder as well, as we saw in 1 Timothy 3, 
1 Timothy chapter 3, must meet the qualification of being able to teach. But not every elder earns his wages by doing these things, again, in a way that we might call full-time. The distinction that we see here in verse 17 is probably very similar to what churches refer to now as lay pastors and full-time pastors, or, or lay pastors and staff pastors. I hesitate, again, to use that language of of lay and and full-time just because it can suggest that pastors that are lay pastors simply pastor part-time, which isn't actually the case. A lay pastor is constantly shepherding, constantly praying, constantly discipling. Probably the main distinction is that his everyday labors aren't revolved around the preaching and teaching and the preparation of those things. In the first century, he might have been a servant. A lay pastor might have been a servant. He might have been a merchant. He might have been a nobleman. He might have been a fisherman. And as these things were his occupation, he also served in the church as an elder, as a shepherd. Today, he might be a lawyer, might be a school teacher, or a banker, or a janitor, or a factory worker. That might be his occupation, and he also serves within the local congregation as an elder, praying for the people of God, and managing the affairs of the church. That would be a type of lay pastor or elder. Then there are those who Paul says they labor or they they work or toil. This is what they do in preaching and teaching. Their lives are focused not only on the pastoral aspects that come with the office of elder, but on the study of the Word of God to teach the people of God what it says, what it means, and how it applies to their lives in all of their particular circumstances. And Paul says that for these elders who rule well, and particularly those who work in preaching and teaching, they are to be considered worthy of double honor. Which is another way of saying compensated. Now how do I know that? How do we know that double honor means compensation? Well, because of what verse 18 says. In verse 18, Paul quotes two different texts. One from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 25, 4, and the other from the New Testament in Luke 10, 7. So, one from Moses and one from Jesus. Those are about the best two authorities you could quote. And both of these texts set forth the very simple principle that working deserves compensation. So Paul, in this text, is saying... Your elders labor among you. They work in preaching and teaching. And so because of what the Bible says about work and compensation, honor your elders in this particular way. Now I would say that most churches and Christians understand this. That's kind of normal. That's what you expect within churches. Pastors, like any other occupation, labor And they have to eat too. I think probably where the most confusion arises is over the question of how much. 
How much do you pay pastors in different churches? How much compensation do they receive? We see some megachurch TV preachers getting paid millions driving around in Bentleys. And I think if we have our Bible glasses on, we can see pretty clearly and pretty obviously that's probably not the kind of compensation that is called for. That might be a little bit of an abuse. But I think sometimes churches swing in the opposite direction too and think that pastors have made a vow to live in poverty. So how do we think about these kinds of things? Well, here's just a few principles to keep in mind that I think apply across the board in every church. Number one is this. A church will honor pastors by not allowing them to become tempted with riches. A church will honor her pastors by not allowing them to become tempted with riches. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, just the next chapter in verses 9 and 10, but those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So a church does not serve their pastor well when they seek to enrich him. They provide on the other hand, a greater opportunity for him to unknowingly fall into a deadly trap. You know, Paul there, when he is referring or or speaking of those who have unknowingly wandered away from the faith, you know, he described that that same kind of action with the false teachers in 1 Timothy as well. They were those who were teaching a false gospel and had drifted and wandered away from the faith, it's very likely that in chapter 6, those are the people he's talking about. The teachers and the leaders who were in the church teaching things that were contrary to the gospel. So the church will honor her pastors by not allowing them to even be tempted by that temptation. Second, a church will honor pastors by not impoverishing them. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. They should be able to live off of that labor. And he likens this kind of compensation to the temple priests that were in the Old Testament who were supported by the sacrifices and offerings of the Israelites. So he says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just a verse previous. He says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple, in the temple service, get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So when it comes to supporting gospel ministers, there's nothing in the New Testament that suggests that you impoverish them. The model is very much like the temple priests. 
How were the temple priests supported? They were supported by the Israelite community bringing in their tithes that went to the temple and provided the food and the places to live for all the Levitical priests. That's the model. Third, another principle to keep in mind is is sort of the middle way. A church will honor pastors by providing them with a modest compensation. A modest compensation. There is an in-between these two extremes. There's an in-between poverty and riches. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9 says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So neither poverty nor riches, but modesty is the kind of middle way. Now of course, this is going to look different depending on the context that you live in and where the church is located. If a church is in rural Alabama or Kentucky or Mississippi, $100,000 might seem a bit extreme, might seem a bit high. I think on average, that's probably true. But if your church is in downtown Manhattan, that actually, $100,000, might be on the low end. I'm not sure. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I would imagine it might be on the lower end. So each church has to consider where they are and ultimately the principle of honoring their elders with neither poverty nor riches. I know in particular of a pastor who pastored this one church for roughly around 30 years and his last salary was around the $100,000 mark. But again, he had been there for 30 years, number one. Number two, it was in the heart of a major city where the cost of living is ridiculously high. So again, it depends on where each church is located and the resources and the cost of living they have. But the principle remains the same, neither poverty nor riches, but modesty. Now, in verses 19 to 21, Paul turns to the issue of the discipline of elders. So he goes from compensation to the discipline of the elders. As we've seen throughout 1 Timothy, there were some in the church who were leaders, who were preaching a false gospel, and who were also living contrary to the true gospel. And in order to address this matter, Paul points here to the process of church discipline. Church discipline has to be carried out, not simply for members, but even for elders and pastors. Now recognize that church discipline is really a foreign concept for many in the church. There's a lot of wrong ideas about what it is because most churches have never seen it. I mean, if you've been a Christian within the last hundred years, this makes no sense for most. Never heard of it. So whenever this subject comes up, I do think it's worth clarifying and then restating what it actually is so that any confusion about the phrase church discipline can be minimized. 
at best. Church discipline is not a vindictive response to sin. It is not merely a punishment or a consequence for sin. It is not some unloving or controlling cult practice within a local church. Church discipline is very much like discipline within a family. In that it is a loving and corrective response to persistent disobedience. So when parents have to discipline their children, right? Because their children are either defying them or engaging in behavior that is destructive for them or others. The goal in discipline is not to give a parent some release for their anger. Anger shouldn't be present. If a parent is ever disciplining their child out of anger, they need to repent. You discipline out of love and a desire to correct. The goal is to rescue them, to save them from their destructive actions by giving them small consequences now so that they might be trained by those consequences to avoid the bigger consequences later. What's very similar in church discipline, it's a family matter. The goal of church discipline is to awaken a person to the reality of their persistent sin now so that they might be restored by the grace of Christ and avoid an eternal judgment later. Right? So the goal of church discipline then is always restoration. It's always to reconcile someone back to the fold. Always to reconcile someone back to Christ who is their Savior and of whom they are straying from. And what church discipline does, or at least the last step in a process of church discipline, is to make a judgment call. That's all it really is, a judgment call. The church gathers together and they don't say, so-and-so is not a Christian. They can't say that. A church can't say that. And they can't say that because no one in the church can see the heart of another person. Someone can be straying and sinning persistently and indeed be a Christian. But they are in very dark waters. So in church discipline, the church never says, this person is not a Christian. Because no one can say that with any certainty. What church discipline says is that based upon the life and testimony of this person, they're not repenting of sin, but rather they're embracing it, they're cherishing it, they're loving it, they're teaching a false gospel, whatever the case may be, B, based upon their life and testimony, we as a church can no longer affirm this person's profession of faith. They may be. They may be Christian. But we have no evidence to make that affirmation in their lives. The fruit that they are producing is bad fruit. 
And what Christ tells us in His Gospel is that if the tree produces bad fruit, it may be a bad tree. If it produces good fruit, it may be a good tree. So based upon the fruit that they are producing, we can no longer bear witness that we are confident that they are Christians. Now, of course, when a church has to get to that point, and when a church has to recognize that this person is no longer living in accordance with the gospel of Christ, and the church has to formally say we can no longer affirm this person's profession, what it is doing is removing that person from its membership. And it wants to encourage, the church wants to encourage those people to continue in the church. It wants to encourage people to repent of their sin. It's not a casting out, right? It's not an excommunication where we send them in a different geographical location. That's, that's never what any discipline is about. It is about restoring the person to Christ and bearing witness within the local congregation of the centrality of holiness among the people of God. Now, whenever the New Testament gives instructions to the church on how to address persistent, unrepentant sin among its members, this is what it always says to do. This is the process. You can read more about it in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11, 1 Timothy 1, verse 20. But we also find it here in our text this morning, verses 19 to 21. Paul is telling Timothy that elders, pastors, are not exempt from the discipline of the church. In verse 19, he says, do not admit or receive a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's a, that's a Matthew 18 standard. Matthew 18, verse 15 to 16 says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Restoration has already taken place. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge, every accusation may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul is saying to the church, if a formal charge is going to be brought before the church because of the wrongdoing of an elder, it has to be substantiated by solid evidence and facts. No hearsay or gossip, but factual evidence backed up by witnesses. Then he says in verse 20 that if the charge has been substantiated and the elder is not repenting and is persisting in his sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest, presumably the rest of the elders within the congregation, so that the rest may stand in fear. So that they may be reminded they are not exempt from this. Again, we have to remember that in 1 Timothy and in this church at Ephesus, there is false teaching within the church that's destroying the church. The gospel is being distorted. Asceticism is being practiced. 
And if the church is going to bear any kind of witness to the holiness of God in an unholy world, she herself has to be holy. And that includes her members, and as we see here, her pastors too. Paul reinforces this point with a solemn charge to Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, when a church has to exercise discipline with one of its members, it can be a painful process. It is a painful process. There's no doubt about that. But when it has to do that with one of its pastors, it can be potentially devastating to a church. I'm sure we've all heard stories at some point about the pastor the church down the street, who everyone loved, everyone cared for, everyone knew, who committed adultery, who left his family and left the ministry. I'm sure we've heard those kind of stories before. Heard about them in Birmingham, heard about them in Louisville, heard about them here. They happen, unfortunately, all too frequently. Those kind of things can cripple a church. They have effects that reverberate outside the church. One of the ways to help prevent that kind of thing from ever happening is to be slow and patient with the very process of ordaining men to the ministry in the first place. That's what Paul goes on to tell Timothy to do in verses 22 to 25. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The laying on of hands is what happens when someone is formally made an elder by the church. And Paul says, be slow about this. Do not rush into this by any means. And the reason he gives is in verses 24 to 25. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. He's saying, look, some people's sin and some people's good works are obvious early on. You can see them. It's clear. A man has an anger problem. A man has a dysfunctional family. You can see that. But some folks, it takes time to see. It takes time to see their good works. It takes time to see the fruit of their sin. It doesn't come out until you get to know that person better on a more personal level. And Paul is telling Timothy that the reason the church should be slow in ordaining men as elders is so that they have time to learn who they are really. What is their family life like? What is their devotional life like? How do they manage their money? Are they prideful or humble? These are things that really can't be known unless you get to know someone over time. 
And if over time the church sees that a man is already serving the church, doing the work that an elder would do in the church, if he's already eldering and desires to serve the church as an elder, then you ordain them. That's, that's really how the church should be raising up elders. It's not as though we see uh, an availability and we say, who wants to do this? And you make them an elder. And then you hope that that office just sort of changes who they are. No. When the church raises up pastors from among herself, it should be people who are already doing the work of shepherding the people of God within the local church. So that when the church gets to the point where it's formally making that person an elder, it's just recognizing something that's already been taking place. And when you do that, when you go through that process, when the church is patient with raising up elders from among her, you aid the church in avoiding potential downfalls of that pastor later. If you rush into those things and there are unknown sins that may come out with more time, you are setting yourself up for failure from the get-go, potentially. So you want to be patient with that and slow, as Paul says, in ordaining the elders. The Lord ultimately, my friends, desires above all a pure bride, a holy people. That's why Christ died, to make for Himself a beautiful bride. Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, that He might make her holy, beautiful, with splendor, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in order to accomplish this end, Jesus' desire to make for Himself a holy and pure people, He has given the church various members, all kinds of members with all kinds of gifts. He has given the church various offices with various functions. And it it is when these various gifts and members and offices are working properly and in order that the church builds itself up in love. We are not ultimately called to be a people who are simply traditional. We are called ultimately to be a people who are biblical and who submit to Christ in all things. So my encouragement, my exhortation to us all is for us to be a people who don't simply play church but for us to be a people who seek to be obedient in Christ, to Christ, in everything we do. Whether that's how we relate to one another, or whether that's how the church itself functions as a body. We want to be obedient to Christ in all we do, so that ultimately, through the church, His name might be exalted among holy people. Would you pray with me?